By the way, it's Wednesday, 12 January, Year of Our Lord, 2022. Welcome to the War Room. Now with over 125 million downloads on the podcast. Of course, we're live everywhere. So the last thing they have is domestic terrorism to basically lock you folks up. Julie Kelly, walk me through. What are they doing here? What are they trying to accomplish? You've been on this for American Greatness from the beginning. Well, January 6th is the pretext for the Democrats, the Biden regime, the administrative state, national security state, uh, to turn the surveillance tools that have been used against foreign terrorists, against domestic terrorists. Now, of course, this means, uh, you know, nearly 75 million Trump voters. They're not even hiding it anymore. They are openly bragging about turning uh, the surveillance state against American citizens. That's former White House counselor Steve Batten on his podcast, War Room Pandemic, interviewing a woman named Julie Kelly, who explains how the deep state is coming after you. It's a theme commonly heard on Bannon's podcast, where belief in the big lie about a stolen 2020 election remains as powerful as ever. And new developments, such as this week's Justice Department charges against leaders of the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, are only seen as further proof of the dastardly leftist plot to target patriotic Trump supporters and tighten its control over America. We'll talk to Tim Miller of The Bulwark about the bizarro world of Bannon's podcast and what impact it's still having on the Republican Party. And then we'll talk to Eric Wemple, media columnist for The Washington Post, on how the press should be covering this strange moment in American politics on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. We now have with us Tim Miller, writer at large of The Bulwark. Tim, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, y'all. It's so good to be back. A lot happening. (laughs) Yes, a lot happening. And we want to talk about your great Bannon piece because it was such a uh, wonderful read, deep dive into this crazy world of MAGA loyalists led by uh, Mr. Bannon. But before that, we've got a lot that we want to talk about because it was quite the week and arguably the worst week of Biden's presidency. He goes big for voting rights and fails. He gets shot down by the Supreme Court on vaccine mandates. His poll ratings, you know, dip to a new low in the 30s, according to Quinnipiac. And um, one can sense the anxiety, if not panic, among uh, Democrats at the moment. How bad is this for Biden right now? And, you know, is there a path back for him? I think there's good reason for panic. I've never been opposed to panic. Sometimes panic yields uh, change and reflection, which I think might be helpful for the Democrats right now. I, I think things are pretty bad. I, if you, like I do, think that total Republican control of Washington heading into 2024 is potentially catastrophic event for the country, depending on what would happen in the 2024 election, I think that there's good reason to panic about, you know, how things are looking as far as the midterms are concerned. Uh, You know, some of Biden's troubles, I think, are a bit out of his hands. You know, I think that the expectations that the left put on him when he had a 50-50 Senate and the tie-breaking vote represents a state that Trump won with 70% of the vote was misguided and set himself up to fail. Uh, I think obviously the Republican misinformation stream, which we can talk about with Bannon and the vaccine hesitancy has contributed to, you know, this, this recent, you know, hospitalization spike. And, and, and so, you know, the, the vaccine mandate might not have been required if it, if it wasn't for that deep well of misinformation, but uh, you know, he is where he is right now. And, and I think that in order to edit to reality, they need to, you know, accept these as facts and change their strategy as such. 
Let me just ask you just one quick follow up to that. Till recently, uh, were a loyal Republican. You worked yep. for John McCain. You worked for Mitt Romney. You were communications director for Jeb Bush when he ran for president. Yep. Um, what did you make of Biden's speech in Atlanta? where he contended anybody who did not go along with changing the rules of the filibuster to pass these voting rights laws was siding with Bull Connor and yeah. Jefferson Davis. Boy, I just, I wasn't, I, I don't think that that rhetoric is useful, I think for a couple of reasons. And I got in a little bit of trouble on this on Twitter the other day. So you always got to be careful what you're saying when you're saying this. I, my personal view is I think that th there should be changes to some of these voting rights laws. And I think that it's obviously true that the Republicans are acting in bad faith in a lot of these states based on the big lie you know, in order to try to limit voting. But the reality is we had more votes in the 2020 election than we've ever had before. A lot of the Republican voter suppression efforts absolutely backfired. The most pressing matter that faces us right now, in my view, is the counting of the votes rather than the casting, you know, that could change based on what happens in various Republican states looking ahead to 22 and 24. But but as it stands right now, the counting is a much bigger threat. Uh, and so, I, look, I, this goes to kind of my original point. I think if you agree with me, and I think that everybody on the left does, that not everybody, but I think the vast majority of the left does, that the that the right right now under Trump is, you know, offers an existential threat to our democracy because of his actions after 2020, then, then what the Biden administration should be doing is welcoming as many people into the tent as possible, you know, trying to, ex and this is what he ran on, trying to expand you know, his remit. So, so people in the suburbs, so working class, you know, whites that had voted for Obama, you know, see this administration as somebody that's welcoming for them. So, you know, I think that he did a good job for one year of, of being careful at not, you know, uh, being unnecessarily incendiary in a way that turns people off. I think they missed the mark a little bit uh, in this speech. This is not to say that there are not racist underpinnings to, you know, some of these voting rights crackdowns or that, that historically there haven't been racist Actions. There have, uh, you know, but lumping in Kristen Cinema with Bull Connor, I just I think that's a recipe for getting Stephen Miller back in the government. And I think Stephen Miller is the person we should be scared of, not not Kristen Cinema. I think there can be there can be legitimate disagreements and strategy and tactics discussed with Kristen Cinema, but but lumping her in with Stephen Miller, I don't see as very helpful. So if I can, I just want to Please. push back push back not for. Yeah, for on the uh, the voter suppression and the impact of some of the voter sure. suppression bills in the states. Uh, just yesterday, the uh, voter registrar for uh, voting in Travis County, which is one of the most populous counties in Texas, reported that they had to reject 50% of all absentee ballot applications as a result of the uh, impact of the new Texas law. Uh, yeah. In Georgia, the use of absentee ballot drop boxes and consequently the uh, kind of ability of people to cast absentee ballots dropped in some counties by as much as 50% wait, as wait, a result wait, wait. of how, Georgia How did the ability of people to cast absentee absentee ballots drop. I mean, the, the the ability of people to cast ballots is a constant. Anybody could get an absentee ballot in Georgia and no, not anyone can get an absentee ballot in Georgia because they have to provide different forms of inf you have to you know, show information that they did before. Voter. And it's increasingly yes. harder to get an absentee ballot. And then it's harder to cast the absentee ballot because the drop boxes have been pulled back. So, well, you know, you can always go to the mailbox, which is the way I cast my absentee ballot. I, I Mike, have, have ballot. you ever lived in a low-income neighborhood where like actually, actually access to these yeah. sort of, you know, it's okay. Access Sorry, to but, mailboxes. But Tim is our, is Tim pretty, is our guest here. But, so yeah. <laughs> I want to ask, I want to ask whether or not it's right to say now that the impact of these voter suppression bills is de minimis when the evidence is only just emerging and what evidence is emerging is not looking good. Look. The Republicans have been doing voter suppression laws for a while now. This is not a new thing. They stepped it up since last election, no doubt. Their voter suppression law efforts completely backfired in 2020. I think if you look at Georgia and Texas, for example, both those laws are bad. I would have voted against both of them. I agree with you that, that you know, we should be making access as easy as possible. But in both those states, there's two weeks of early voting. So... I, I, I think that the Republicans' intention in both of those states are bad. I think that the bills are bad. But to say that in a place where you have two weeks of early voting, that 
this is some sort of threat to people's ability to cast their ballot. I just I think it's a stretch. And, and I think that, that it's bad intentions and that, that we should that Democrats should fight these bills and the Democrats in states where they have control, like Michigan, for example, should be expanding voting as much as possible. But the biggest threat to our democracy is not that somebody who wants to vote in Travis County isn't going to be able to vote. The biggest threat to our democracy is that next time in Georgia, there is not Brad Raffensperger as secretary of state, but a Trumper as secretary of state, and that Joe Biden or whoever the Democrat is beats Donald Trump by less than 5,000 votes, and that they monkey with the count, or that they make claims that legal ballots are fraudulent and try to send alternate electors. That is the threat. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but that is a much more urgent threat than than the- I would I would point out for context that Brad Raffensperger was a Trumper, was a partisan elected Republican, but at the end of the day, he did the right thing. Right. And, and and do you think Jody Heiss would do the same thing? The well, guy who's I, running against him. Okay, I, but let's move I, I on from this because there's a lot but, of stuff to talk about. But I do yeah. want to just ask, follow up on one thing that Tim said. You you said that you in some ways it was unf- that, the, that the progressives had put unfair expectations on Biden. But I just want to, and this is not a rhetorical question, I'm, curi- I'm just genuinely curious what you think, you know, how much of this is also self-inflicted in the sense that, I mean, Joe Biden, isn't it his responsibility and his White House's responsibility to sort of reset expectations and not let them get out of hand? Because it seems like they did in terms of uh, Build Back Better and, and now voting rights. And furthermore, you know, the whole dynamic with um, Manchin and, and cinema. You know, does he deserve criticism at all, do you think, for letting it go as far as he did? It, it seems like it was just Lucy and the football. Shouldn't mm-hmm. they have figured it out a lot earlier that they just weren't, weren't going to be on board ever? Probably, right? Uh, look, this is where, as a immigrant to the Biden coalition, uh, maybe I'm less sensitive to the demands of managing the left than the people who have been involved in this are, because they seem to think that the left needs a lot of handholding, a lot of management. You know, and I think in that sense, maybe from a policy standpoint, the country would have been worse off. But from a political standpoint, Biden would have been better off had, you know, David Perdue won one of those two Georgia seats. And, and there wasn't this expectation that he that he passed things with just the Democratic coalition. But we're neither here nor there. So given that, I, I do think that at some point, Biden needs to come to terms with what reality is. And I, I saw something today, I forget who, who reported it, that Bill Clinton had called Manchin and said, you need to get to terms with one or two of the t- big ticket items from BBB, you know, pay for it with, you know, big tax increases on the rich or whatever, whatever it is. So we can get to and have an accomplishment, something, a, a big ticket item that Biden can promote. Uh, that's good advice from Bill Clinton. And I, and I think that Biden probably should have been taking that advice from the start. Now, my one caveat to this is my in-laws are in West Virginia. So I've, and I've spent a lot of time in West Virginia over the holidays. In a lot of ways, I think Manchin needed to say no to something in order to get to yes to something, if that makes sense, right? In order to survive in the state of West Virginia, he has to be able to demonstrate, I was standing in the way of the Democrats that you hate. And so, you know, maybe no matter where you started, Manchin was always going to start at no. And so starting big makes sense, you know, because then you can get to a small yes. You know, that theory of the case only works assuming they actually get to a small yes. A couple of other big developments this week. Uh, the Justice Department uh, brought seditious conspiracy charges against the leaders of the um, Oath Keepers. And that's the first time that they've gone that far in terms of its prosecution of uh, January 6th folks. It's clearly a significant uh, development in which they lay out uh, how this guy, Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, was planning to bring weapons to January 6th, talking about civil war, talking about how the political process is broken down and now we need to take things into our own hands. On the other hand, you read the indictment closely, they've got all the messages, signal messages that Rhodes and his Confederates were using. You don't see communications there quoted with anybody in Trump world, anybody in the White House, uh, which is where the January 6th committee seems to want to go to try to prove a connection there. Do you think 
we're going to get there on January 6th and actually show that somebody in Trump world was actively planning violence on January 6th. And if not, what's going to be... Where, Michael, where's the things going to come? You're taking us down the collusion rabbit hole again. <laughs> Skullduggery. It is skullduggery. This, this is the Trump. This is the key, the key to Trump's corruption success. Is that you know always the reporters you know uh, always looking for the cover up rather than the crime, right? The cover up is worse than the crime, and so but Donald Trump is not a cover up type. He did, he did everything out in the open back in Russia. During the Russia scandal, uh, you know, when they were hacking his opponent's emails, he was speaking out saying, hack more. Uh, you know, I want to see more of uh, our opponent's emails. Like, did it really matter like whether or not he was back shunning with them? I guess mildly. But well, the, that's the, the, the crime, though. I mean, you know, that's okay, that's what the political crime, you know. But well, the political, political crimes of Trump are as well established <laughs> right. as they could okay. possibly be. I don't have hope is... that the January 6th committee is going to send him to jail, if that's what you're asking. I, I think yeah. that that what Trump did was was very much out in the open. Uh, I think that his his plan was stupid and wasn't going to work to overturn the election. That it was still multifaceted, included pressuring secretaries of state, pressuring state legislators. It included pressuring Mike Pence. You know, holding that speech, the speech incitement that day. And, I, you know, for me, uh, that's bad enough. He's guilty and he should have been convicted by the Senate. You know, the Oath Keepers, this is, you know, to keep in mind, you know, there was violence the night before on the 5th, right? So, you know, again, I, I guess it does matter. Yes, was Mark Meadows texting with Stuart Rhodes? Uh, you know, that would that would be a next level up as far as, as the criminal complaint. But it's not as if Donald Trump was not aware when he went down to that speech in the mall on the 6th that there were organized groups that were intent on creating trouble. He wanted trouble. You know, I, he just he doesn't want but his fingerprints not... on it, but that's Trump. That is not enough for your new friends on the left. They want criminal indictments. Yeah, I, I, I think that, again, uh, so going back to the expectations that Biden was going to be FDR, that, that was misguided. I think the F expectations that we're going to get a Trump perp walk are misguided. I think that what we want to see is what was Trump doing for those few hours between when the Capitol was stormed and and, you know, when he gave that weak video and, uh, you know, I, I do think that others could have been talking to the Oath Keepers. There's evidence Paul Gosar was talking to the Oath Keepers. I, I think there's probably still more to be found out in that regard. And that's really bad, by the way. Really bad. <laughs> no, OK, yes. it might not be as bad as they want, but that's really, really, really bad. OK, historically um, bad. Another development uh, this week that our uh, co-host Victoria knows something about is the attention people are putting on these phony slates of alternate electors that were actually sent from what seven states i believe to the national archives uh, these are republicans in michigan georgia wisconsin and elsewhere who just got together and declared we're the real electors they just all decided to they were like yeah, oh. they all decided to and uh, sent them through and of course that ties into the infamous Eastman memo in which he um, argues that Pence had the authority to just discard the real electors who had been certified by the governors of those states and replace them with the phony electors self-appointed by these various Republicans. Um, Victoria, you were uh, looking into this for quite some time. What do we know about how these, uh, in all these states, all these uh, Republicans happen to get together and uh, nominate themselves to be phony electors. Yeah, so it goes back to what Tim said, I think, which was that there was a multifaceted approach or attack on the results of the 2020 election. And one critical element of it that they, one kind of piece that they had to get in place were these rival slates of electors in order to justify and push Pence to kind of dispute or reject the Biden electors on January 6th. So you know, as it happens, on December 14th, which is the day that the Electoral College met, there were rival slates of Republican Trump electors who showed up at the right places. They were coordinated, it looks like, and wrangled by the Republican parties in all of these states. The question is, I suppose, did they just kind of happen to show up? You know, sua sponte, all had the same idea on the same day without coordinating? Or 
was it coordinated and and was it a part? Is there a crime here in submitting? Yeah, these or is it just a PR documents? Like yeah, where there's it's, official it's sort documents. Of, right. It sort of depends. Yeah. So it depends in each state. Each in each state has got different rules and laws regarding whether or not you are pretending to be an official when you're not actually an official. So it it in every it's different in every. But there's state. no federal statute that would prohibit. There you might know, be falsifying right? documents and sending depen- them to the archives. It, de- it depends on whether or, a, or not yeah. you regard being an elector a federal uh, being a, a a federal official and then of course there's also the mail and wire fraud statutes um so there is potentially a um you know kind of a federal offense uh whether or not you've got a US attorney or DOJ looking into it i don't know if we can get one of these guys on mail fraud i'm all for it but, you know, whatever <laughs> okay. whatever such a, it such takes such a great such a great useful <laughs> it's statute just, it's another element uh-huh. of the of what they call the paper coup this paper just happened to be certificates. There was the Eastman memo. All right, Tim, you um, spent a week listening to the podcast of Steve Bannon. And, you know, at first blush, one question is, why would you want to do that? <laughs> on, on, the, uh, on second thought, you wrote this terrific piece that, into, you know, that gave us a rare look into the bizarro world of the former White House counselor. What did you discover listening to uh, yeah. Steve Bannon for a week? Dude is prodigious. I'll tell you that. 16 hours. It was 16 hours I had to spend with Steve. I guess I do listen to it on 1.5x, so maybe it wasn't a full 16 hours, but he did 16 hours. And look, my main takeaway is this. Steve is very good at riling up people's grievances and at, and at touching you know places in the audience you know, where they are upset and, you know, being able to sort of turn the knobs to dial up their anger at, you know, the powers that be. This is something that he honed way back at Breitbart when I used to deal with him when I was in the dark side, but that he really, you know, has has perfected now. And and I think that the most striking thing about his podcast is that is one, uh, you know, that it in some in some ways is living in a completely alternate reality, you know, where the 2020 election was flawed, you know, where Joe Biden is running an illegitimate regime, you know, where the vaccines are killing people, not COVID. At another level, it is very, you know, prescriptive and practical. He's a political person. He's calling for people to run for these offices, to beat the Brad Raffensburgers, to run for local city council, to run for local electoral offices. You can sense at times, you know, that he knows his guests are, are spreading BS and he, try, and he tries to pivot them back to, you know, what are the action items? How can we stir up the audience to action? And, and I think that is, is particularly concerning and, and why I wanted to listen to it when it's combined with just this. There's no other way to put it, a religious fervor. I mean, he is he is pushing a, a crusade into action. This is not unprecedented. You know, it's not different from what a lot of folks on the religious right did. But, you know, it is it's almost a secular religious crusade where he uses the iconography of he has Jesus and Mary over his shoulder. He has a prayer. He brings in a rabbi, he brings in a priest for a prayer, you know, but it's all in service to, you know, the fight that they are in to save the country. You know, and so in some ways, it's it's a category difference from like what Pat Robertson. And Can I just say, do. and the idea yeah. of grievance, the idea that yeah. they're coming after you, that uh, the, uh, all the investigations, January 6th, is yeah. really just a cover for the targeting of patriotic yeah. MAGA folks. They are coming after you and you can take them down. Right. It's both of those things together. Right. Um, you know, the the you're getting banned from social media. That's one way they're coming after you. Uh, you know, the, the what they're doing in schools is a way that they're coming after you. The fact that your vote doesn't count because, you know, these shadowy forces stole the election from you and, and all of that together. You know, it, you know, combines into they're coming for your way of life, uh, you know, and they want to change the fundamental compact of, of America and that the only way to beat them is to essentially overthrow the illegitimate regime. And so he is very adamant about this and that he believes that they can that they have the power to do that. So, Tim, the thing that I find kind of confounding about yeah. about the whole thing and, and that you captured in your piece the kind of contradictions and, and paradoxes of, of uh 
of you know the, this part of the, the MAGA movement that there's some there's clearly something scary and dark and menacing about uh, what what he and, and others are doing. They obviously have the power to move people to do bad things, and yet they're also there's this kind of buffoonish and incompetent quality to the whole thing, like over and over again. So it does raise the question, you know, how real is it? How dangerous is it? Um, and how do you kind of process that contradiction? Yeah, uh, the contradiction is very important because it's also part of the appeal, right? right. Uh, you, it's you can, fun. You, it's fun. Yeah, yeah, you could imagine this type of podcast being very dark and scary, and you know what he's going to say every day. Bannon is, is um, you know, he brings in a new guest. It's kind of gonzo, right? And you don't exactly know what his position is going to be for day in, day out, right? He has certain certain you know, catch words and hallmarks, you know, you know, he's going to say the Biden regime is illegitimate, but, but on, on any given thing, you know, he keeps people on their toes and the people that come in are ridiculous. I do think some of the, some of the viewers are probably laughing, you know, along with some of the guests as, as, as preposterous as they are about the John McAfee's death conspiracy. You know, it's sort of like a tabloid. <laughs> what is that you one? Know, I, I, I don't, I don't know this. John, uh, we don't know where John McAfee's body is apparently. And he hasn't gotten a Christian burial and they had a guy fly to Europe <laughs> to try to find it. I, you know, it's the kind of stuff that it's the reason why you put, pull the national Enquirer off sometimes at the front of the grocery store line, right? Because there's some entertaining stuff in there, you know, it's not all true, but it's, so he has that element to it. The, the, the scary parts are twofold. One is, and the reason I wanted to write this piece is because there is a more competent Mitch McConnell, Ron DeSantis wing of the party that is using, you know, the, the way that Bannon incites and inspires to get power for themselves. Right. And, and so, so they are riding this wave and trying to ignore the, you know, dark underbelly in the basement of their movement, right? And so I think that, you know, the way that, that Bannon has sort of co-opted the base, and you saw the supposedly normal Ohio Senate candidate, Jane Timken, you know, not Mandela Vance, um, she's on the show, right? I, you, have, you have mainstream politicians come on the show, the head of the Republican Study Committee, Jim Banks, on the show. And so I, so I think, you know, when they're on the show, they don't talk about the, you know, 400,000 people died from the vaccine nonsense, right? They talk about normal stuff. And so, so I think that's one thing that's concerning. The other, the, the more concerning thing for me, though, is even if Bannon is not you know, smart enough to run an actual coup or his little pot gang of, you know, you know, Keystone cops can't actually pull off a coup in 2024. What we saw in 1-6 is there is still something dangerous about what he's participating in because the people who are listening, not all of them, but some of them really believe that the country has been stolen from them, that everyone in power is lying to them, that everything that they love about their culture, you know, about their religion is in threat and that in order to keep it, they need to fight, right? And so when you listen to that day in, day out, and it has this religious crusade element to it, and it has all of these faulty notions about what happened, you know, and, and the way that they are victims, uh, you know, banged into their heads. Like, should it be that surprising that a handful of them would try to take action into their own hands? Right? I, I think that is, that is the other part of this that I think is really concerning. Bannon is never going to be the one that's like, storm the Capitol, right? But, but might not a couple of people hear the message that we should not be so timid in the fight against our foes as a call to storm the Capitol again? That actually happened. Didn't he talk right. on January 5th? All hell's going to break loose tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, he exactly. kind of telegraphed it in that sense. Hey, one other character you mentioned in your piece who apparently uh, regularly is featured on Bannon's uh, podcast is this uh, a Chinese billionaire dissident <laughs> Miles Guo in which they he regularly plays a video of the guy on his yacht. <laughs> Tell us about- You have to watch this video. You have to watch this video. Yeah. It's I don't think Yesikoff is familiar with that, uh, that particular <laughs> hip hop song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking down the CCP. I mean, it literally could be a Saturday Night Live clip. It is so ridiculous. It's like an older man, late middle-aged Chinese man, rich man on a yacht like holding a Pomeranian and smoking a cigar and shadow boxing his enemies. And anyway, it's, uh, it's, and I guess he's one of Bannon's funders. So, you know, he gets, isn't he the guy that uh, owned the yacht where, where uh, wasn't Bannon yeah. arrested on, on his yes. yacht? Yeah, yeah, probably right. this yacht in the yeah. in the video. I didn't confirm that. <laughs> I, I got to say, um, but this is the, real, and yeah, just really quick yeah. on the China thing. Yeah. And I, I have no I'm sure this is more in Isikoff's territory than mine. I'm sure that there is some, you know, financial 
underpinning, you know, I mean, we, we already know that they're in a financial relationship, but what exactly Guo wants, and that is outside of my, you know, expertise. But, but what's relevant for this is that, is that Bannon uses, you know, that, you know, his funder and that insight into the Chinese Communist Party, and I guess Guo has uh, some sort of feud with Xi, to make some really compelling, frankly, moralistic anti-China arguments that, that is, is part of this effort, right? And so, you know, it's, it, is, it is, again, part of this fight between good and evil, where he positions his, you know, listeners, you know, against the, the illegitimate regime here and against the illegitimate regime there. And, and frankly, there are a lot of hypocrisies in the American elites when it deals with China, and he uses them to his full advantage. So, I, you know, I think that that's an important part of the puzzle here, too. I will say that um, the the part of the piece at, at the end of the day, when you're done reading it, you know, it, it's very serious stuff and it's scary. You were just talking about that, but there is one part of the piece that still has me laughing, which is you you identified this verbal tick that Bannon has that I had also kind of thought about a little bit, where he insists on referring to the election as three November. And then you describe him, I think, as a Ponzi limey, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> it, is, it is true, though. He ha- this is another key part of Bannon, right? He's obsessed with all of it, right? And so, like, he the, this betrays him. His downfall in the White House was talking so much to Michael Wolff, you know, and Ga- and Vanity Fair. He loved Gabe Sherman. He liked leaking to that. I mean, he loves this kind of the, the global aristocracy, and he wants to be sort of seen as this shadowy figure by them, which is why it's kind of annoying sometimes to give him the attention that he desires. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's like what you know. This is a, this is supposed to be the podcast of the working class, and yet he's using the the European date construction. I don't know. Uh, he can't help himself. Yeah, Bannon, I should say, was uh, a uh, a source for more of the books on Donald Trump than uh, almost anybody, but a somewhat dubious source at that. Anyway, Tim, it's a great piece. Uh, one can find it on the Bulwark. Yep, it'll be up on the Bulwark.com. Uh, and um, uh, yeah, I'm hoping to do some more stuff next week. And what are you what are you working on now? You got a book coming out, right? I'm working on a book, TBD, on the big announcement on that, but hopefully this summer, so we'll have more later. And um, I want to do, I don't know if it'll be the very next thing, but I'm interested in David McCormick, who's running in Pennsylvania, Dina Powell's husband. And the interesting thing about that that I want to get into is Breitbart, and this band account has endorsed him as being pure MAGA. And I think that it's interesting that it, it's going to speak to the fact that, you know, MAGA these days is now defined only by, are you willing to sign a blood oath to Donald Trump? Are you willing to not admit that Biden won legitimately? And, you know, do you think we should be tough on immigrants? And like, that's it. And besides that, you can be a New York hedge fund <laughs> globalist. Investing in China. So I'm interested in those tensions and in, in the McCormick MAGA little dance. I'll probably do that next. If he signs that, I mean, is he, is he going to be do you think he's going to be a kind of a Glenn Youngkin figure where he's able to kind of straddle that line? It'll be interesting. I, I think it's really tough to do the Glenn Youngkin in a Senate race, right? Uh, the primaries are longer, for example. You don't, you have these national issues that you have to weigh in on. And Glenn really was able to fall back on not answering questions about Trump, right? He's like, this is a race about Virginia, you know? And so that you can't do that in the Senate. If you're in a primary with other folks that are pushing you to the right, Youngkin had a convention. So there are a lot of ways that make it hard to do Youngkin. I I think that that McCormick tries to do a one step over from Youngkin, which is how can I play enough footsie with the, you know, with word, word games on, on, you know, the way that the election was stolen, maybe not stolen, but the rules around the pandemic and the mail-in voting, can he do that? And straddle that line. Um, I, I think it's the most interesting kind of case of of whether you know a, a slightly perverted version of the Yunkin model like could. Work. I think that was the Yunkin model, though. What you just define what McCormick is trying to do is sort of you know figure out word games that you could yeah. you know the keep the base is, I mean, happy yeah. while not alienating suburban voters. Yeah, and McCormick's literally hired Hope Hicks, I think, and some other like actual Trumpers. So I don't think he's going. <laughs> okay. And I mean, Dina Wife, his wife worked for him. So I think he'll be a, a, at yeah. least a half step over from Youngkin. But yeah, it will right. be uh, it'll be interesting to watch. I think he, he has an announcement. Well, we week. will be eagerly waiting to read what you find out and then have you back on Skullduggery to talk about it. Can't wait. Thanks, so. Thanks, right. guys.
We are now joined by Eric Wemple, the media columnist for The Washington Post. Eric, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you for having me very much. I I love going on this with you guys. So, <laughs> well, we love having you. And we wanted to talk, you know, there's been this ongoing debate sort of in media circles about the moment in American politics and how we cover it. And some, including like your Washington Post colleague, Dana Milbank, uh, have been arguing that the uh, traditional rules of the game for us journalists uh, are really should be thrown out the window right now because we're facing this existential threat to American democracy by Donald Trump and his backers and what the Republican Party is doing at the state and local level. And I guess those are those people are arguing that, you know, this calls for a different approach for journalists and that we've got to call out the liars. We don't give them the benefit of the doubt or equal opportunity to um, explain their positions. We've got to um, rise to the moment. What say you on this? Well, there was an interesting moment. Uh, you know, Jay Rosen is on one side of this debate. Ross Douthat is on sort of another. They both had op-eds talking about this situation. And they went, They were talking in the abstract, as we have been, or you had, uh, just the way in which you introduced this topic. And Douthat said something that I thought was very important. He said, well, we can't speak generally about this. Why don't I give you an example of a story that, a story about COVID or something, and you tell me how this should be edited differently to comply with your prescription that now newspapers have to signal that democracy is about to die in, you know, in, in every story or more frequently at least. And Jay Rosen responded that he didn't have any particular prescription for a particular story. He just had a general critique. And that is where I think this debate sort of breaks down is you have Several people who I think have are pretty sort of on the right track, but they're always saying, you know, the media writ large needs to, you know, change its approach, change, you know, and, and seize on this crisis right now and alert everyone that this crisis is afoot. And I am sitting there saying, OK, show me exactly where the story went wrong. Show me where this other story went wrong. Show me where this other story went wrong. Because what I see writ large when I consume my media is a great degree of alarm about the prospect that our democracy is just about done. And I see that as being the investigative focus of most media outlets, most major media outlets. If you look at New York Times, Washington Post, all the networks, ProPublica, Reuters just did a fantastic thing about election workers being threatened. I see the deployment, at least the investigative deployment of American newspapers, you guys too, you know, being very strongly on this alarm. And that's where I, as a media critic, that's where I look to really see where the priority is being placed, is where are the investigators? They've all been on January 6th. I mean, the danger that some would argue of that approach is that if we're not seen as neutral arbiters, we lose our credibility with a big segment of the readership and the American public. Right. I don't think there's any question that there is that danger, right? Like if newspapers did everything that say Dan Frumkin and, and Jay Rosen and other people of that opinion are prescribing, uh, media trust would crater even more quickly than it already is. Now, I'm not saying that that is a disqualifying reason for not doing it. I don't think we as journalists should be results oriented. We should do what we think is right and come what may. I know that you guys practice your journalism that way, right? You tell the truth, you investigate, and whatever happens, happens. So I think that that is the most important criterion is what do we think we should say about this? And I do think, I do agree with Rosen and Frumkin and, and, and everybody in the sense that the media was not prepared for Trump. Going back to 2016, they weren't prepared for the constant lies. They didn't have any really good plan, and it took a long time to figure it out. I think eventually they kind of got there, but this discussion now that you reference about democracy and 
making sure that the, the threat to democracy is reflected in every piece of journalism is an outgrowth of that earlier alarm over Trump's lies, I think. Eric, but what about the just the premise of what some of these people are arguing and that Dana Milbank wrote in his column, which is that the mainstream media is covering Biden, you know, as negatively as as we covered Trump. I mean, do you buy into that? Uh, Because it seems to me, as Mike posed it before, it was that now we, you know, we have to throw out the norms of American media coverage. Well, we we have thrown out those norms in so many different ways. I mean, we didn't used to call presidents liars in headlines, for example. Right. I mean, I strongly dissent from uh, Dana Milbank's column. I don't. That's not what I've seen. That's not what I see in terms of the coverage of Biden versus Trump. It's not what I experienced in 2017. If you recall, look at the 2017 coverage of Russia and Trump. Look at how much coverage there was. Look at how deep it went. Look at how crisp it was. Look at how it skewered him. Take a look at all the opinion coverage of Trump versus the opinion coverage of Biden. I just don't trust AI to measure. I don't trust computers to measure journalism and negative versus- And let's ex- let's explain that because uh, Dana in his column used AI algorithms, some firm that tallied it up and concluded that uh, our coverage of Biden is, you know, more negative. And these AI is not nearly as sophisticated as a human brain and it can't really uh, it's probably the nuances. more true it's probably more true this week after the week Biden has had yeah and, uh, yeah. yeah yeah true and Dana you know showed uh, when when asked he showed some of the data behind there's lists of what's negative and what's positive and I experienced this back when the Harvard Shorenstein Center was doing negative versus positive comparisons of uh, Clinton and Trump and so on and so forth. And I, I, I emerged pretty unimpressed with how it would judge negative versus positive. Like a perfect example is like, let's say someone has gotten uh, their, their favorability rating has dropped and that is reported. Since it dropped, that's going to be called negative coverage when actually it's 100% neutral coverage. You know what I mean? So, and, and that's coverage that's given to every president. <laughs> every single president, you cover their favor, favorability rating. So, I mean, I just, I have a, a real lot of problem. I think we all can remember and scroll back to the coverage. Just look at Mimi and Random. They, they do a, like a roundup of every day's news. You can go to any day in any year and look at the coverage. You can see, you know, I remember what I saw of the Trump coverage. You know, every single day it was a torrent of very critical coverage. And I don't see that with Biden. I really don't. I still see, however, accountability coverage. And I think a lot of people agree that, for example, on the Afghanistan stuff, that the media swung a little bit wide of the mark. You know, hysterical coverage, especially on televised medium, just way, way, way out there. Right. And I think that that was that's something that this group really seized on, which is that the struggle for equivalence of making one scandal as big as the previous president's scandal, if you understand what I'm saying, is trying to make all scandals basically equal. And I think that is a problem, but I I have found the Biden coverage overall to be more or less commensurate with, say, previous coverage of Democratic and Republican normal presidents. So if I can, I want to home in on going back to kind of Mike's uh, bigger question, leaving aside the kind of particulars of the Biden coverage. And it seems to me that you can you can almost segment the journalist field into kind of opinion, investigative and daily coverage, you know, kind of. And the critique seems, I think, most acutely focused on the daily coverage. And this week or the last few weeks may have offered possibly an example of it, which is the kind of the coverage of the attempts to pass the voting rights legislation and to change the filibuster. One thing I noticed and a few pe- more than a few people have pointed out is the, the tendency to just cover the horse race. And if you read the coverage of this bill, I dare you to find more than 1% of that coverage actually discussing what the bill does. Is that, first of all, do you think that's a sort of like a fair assessment of the situation? And is it a telling critique of daily news's ability to cover democracy issues? 
that's a fair critique, but I also don't think it's it's isolated to democracy. It is for it was for the Build Back Better. It was for the infrastructure bill. It was for you know whatever bill. It was for Obamacare. It was for everything. You know um, that is a common complaint, especially when the the issues are complex and so so on and so forth. You can't media media organizations generally do fail to put in there two or three graphs or four graphs explaining all that's in the bill. But isn't part of the problem is, in fact, that's precisely the problem. These were grab bag bills in which they had tons of things in them, which made it hard for people to explain what it was. Is that, that, ex- is that sufficient is, to say? I think, this is, I think this is endemic to yeah, yeah, there's uh, journalism some of that. But today. Look, back I mean, better, we are drawn, we are drawn to, as, as, as Victoria said, we're drawn toward the horse race, we're drawn toward personalities, we're drawn toward conflict. Those are all thus. things. Those it are all was things. always thus. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> Nothing was, has changed on that regard. But uh, I will no, no, say, no, but should Mike, it, but Mike, should it's it, become Mike? more I mean, acute. The, yeah. no, it has I'm become just, more look, acute the, because we have a broken act, business model. In the and for the we are dependent act, on clicks. Yeah, right, right. Look, in the For the People Act, it's not just one thing declaring Election Day a national holiday. It's gerrymandering. It's campaign finance. It's everything on the progressive wish list when it comes to elections. So that just made it harder for anybody to understand exactly. Not that hard, Mike. You know, I don't think that's an excuse. Um, And look, I think that when these bills come down and they're really big bills and news organizations know that they're going to be really uh, contentious on the floor of each each camera, what they need to do is a big freaking explainer and they need to explain how this would change everything. And let me tell you something. In my view, in some respects, that takes more concentration and more effort than going up and getting an anonymous quote from a senator about how they're going to vote on the bill or whatever. That takes time and effort. And news organizations need to have those things equipped and alongside their regular coverage. And guess what? Those explainers, we do a lot of them. Um, right. because our, our audience, which is a lot more in kind of in the heartland, not people who necessarily follow the ins and outs of what's happening in Washington every day. They are actually starving for those kinds of stories, and they do well. They do they well. Re- and they they really do well. Accruing, uh, they keep going. They have they have a good shelf life. Right, right. They're evergreen in a way, yeah. Yeah. And so I agree with you, Dan. I think that that's a really big element. And I think that a lot of these news organizations could get by that critique by keep on posting that explainer. It's, as you say, it's evergreen. It has value. This is one of Frumkin's thing, and I agree with Frumkin on this point particularly. And that makes it easier to drop in the description in every single iteration of your, you know, of your horse race coverage. And I got to say, I don't think it's fair to call congressional coverage of like changing alliances and stuff, horse race. Horse race I see as a campaign exclusive sort of term. This is significant political coverage when you have changing alliances on Capitol Hill, you have the filibuster and all kinds of uh, questions about its role in the past and its role in the present. I see that coverage as really worthy coverage, shoe leather reporting, and so on and so forth. So I don't want to diminish that one bit. But back to the the larger theme, you know, Danny talked before about how we didn't used to say in news coverage that somebody was lying. We might question the facts and say, you know, point out factually where something might not be uh, accurate or false. But, you know, it's now sort of almost routine to use that term. I was watching CNN on Thursday and uh, they were just coming out of um, Minority Leader McCarthy's press conference in which he talked about why he wasn't going to comply with the January 6th committee request. And uh, John Harwood, fine reporter, comes on afterwards say, well, McCarthy is just lying. And it was just like almost routine. What's your take on the use of the word lie to describe in news coverage what one side is saying? Well, I think that, you know, it's it's become routine because lying has become routine. I think that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it used to be, it used to be very difficult <laughs> to yeah. make that case 
you know, before, like, I remember one time the Post was covering the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, second Bush administration, excuse me, it was like 2004, and said someone, I forgot who it was, intentionally said a false thing or something, intentionally <laughs> made a false thing. So well, they that, say that, that they, would qualify as a lie. Right, yes. But they spelled right. out the exact textbook, you know, dictionary yeah. definition of lie. Yeah. But the problem is today it's so easy to prove these lies. Well, look, look, let, let me give you an example. We're having on this. You will be coming on after Tim Miller, who did a great piece this week about Bannon's podcast in which he just spouts routinely the big lie about the stolen election and how, you know, the deep state is coming to target patriotic Trump supporters and whatnot. How do you cover that? How do you report on somebody who's saying something so wildly divergent from what we know to be the facts and yet may actually believe it? He's scratching yeah. his head for the record. Cue <laughs> yeah. uh, to listeners. Yeah. Huge, huge sigh, scratching his head. We got uh, Wimple stumped. <laughs> I do believe, uh, I do believe, as I say, that the lie coverage, calling a lie a lie, is is part of our job and hasn't hadn't been part of our job prior to like 2015 or 2016. And I think actually we're still a little bit gun shy. And I think that has to improve because really the lies are just so, as I said, they're so easy to detect. And it's so easy to document that the person knew that they were wrong. That was, for the longest time, the mens rea thing, right? The, the state of mind sort of thing was the hardest thing. And every journalistic dean and gray beard out there would say, well, you can't prove state of mind. So we can't say that he lied or she lied. Well, now we have all this evidence about state of mind coming out of text messages, coming out of all, all different sort of sources. And we know that these people lie. And we know that they've seen this, they've tweeted it. You know, we have, we have every element necessary to prove it in so many instances. I think it's malpractice not to say it. I think the next step on this, and, and that might be part of the what's driving a lot of the kind of the concern or the criticism of media coverage of the kind of fragile state of our democracy, is that it, it's not just a question of whether or not you call something a lie, but it's also a question of how does the press cover and counter disinformation campaigns, which are very active and aggressive. And just calling something a lie isn't a counter to these kind of widespread disinformation campaigns. And, and I think this may cause you to sigh and scratch your head even a little bit more. Is there a role for the kind of the mainstream traditional press in countering disinformation? Well, I think that's, that's, that's very core to our job. You know, Margaret Sullivan this week wrote about the truth sandwich that NPR put around Trump's, his interview, uh, where they taped the interview and then they, rebutted him before <laughs> before he said something and they rebutted him after he said something and then he eventually just gave up and hung up the phone. But the question you raise, I think, is a broader one regarding like disinformation on social media. And I think that's very difficult. And I'll tell you why. I think that much of the disinformation, most of the harmful disinformation circulates on a right-wing sort of like echo chamber. And if you look this guy, Yochai Benkler, and his fellow uh, scholars up at Harvard did an amazing study in 2016 showing this network effect where all these places, Fox News, Breitbart, Gateway Pundit, they circulate within each other and they, they give velocity to each one of their own little stories. And they don't really intersect with other organizations or mainstream news organizations. And so we are trying to combat disinformation, but we're not reaching the people who are receiving it, which gets back to what we were talking about earlier with, you know, media trust and so on and so forth. Let me throw another example at you. Uh, Mike was asking how you how do you cover Steve Bannon's lies, Victoria asking generally how do you deal with disinformation? What about Tucker Carlson? Um, he's a guy who you've written about. He is on Fox every evening spewing conspiracy theories. You know, Highest rated show on cable news. Right. OK. Right. Highest rated show on cable. But that's four million people a night. That's not that's that's those are big numbers. Three point two six. Three point two six. Right. Joe Rogan uh, gets 
11 million downloads to his podcast for every ep- episode, right? I mean, Steve Bannon and some of these other podcasts are getting numbers that are, you know, in that same range. And yet, we seem to be fixated on Tucker Carlson. We did a couple of pieces in the last week or so. One, uh, our colleague John Ward uh, really dismantled Tucker Carlson's, uh, and putting in air quotes, documentary, Patriot Purge, where he talked about the false flag operation on January 6th. Uh, Then we had another piece by Tom LoBianco asking the very good question, how did Tucker Carlson go from being the guy who took down the 9-11 truthers to becoming a 1-6 truther? Well, the the answer to your question we saw this week with that extraordinary Ted Cruz grovel to Tucker Carlson in which he basically apologized for calling the people who assaulted the Capitol terrorists. I mean, that shows the power (laughs) that Carlson actually had. Has. What were you saying? Right, I'm but sorry. but isn't there also a danger of you know being uh, outrage amplifiers and having some of the same problems we had with with Trump? So how do we how do you navigate that? And and by the way, those stories about Tucker Carlson they do pretty well. So there are incentives built in to write about him. Right. First, I I would like to not necessarily disagree, but just add a, a little bit of a. a my spin to this idea about the audiences. You write about Rogan, you have your numbers right about Carlson, but the thing about Carlson is he has a massive internet long tail. And cable news sort of meshes with the internet and with Twitter uh, and other social media platforms in ways that other other outlets just don't. They have this yeah. huge internet importance. And so it's, I always think Jack Schaefer makes this argument, oh, it's just three or 4 million people. We're in a country of what, 330 million, whoop-de-doo. And I'm always like, no, there's a lot more people that get this stuff elsewhere than just watch directly on TV. And that's more and more true with the young, uh, young folks in America today. The next point is that Tucker Carlson, I, for the same reasons, I feel there's not much defense. Like you guys, me, we all write about Tucker. There is so much that he does on every night that's rebuttable. Like every single segment he has, you guys and I, we could write four stories, five stories, six stories a day rebutting his stuff. And I think it's important to do what you do and what what I do. But there's also a question of like, how many resources are you going to plow behind rebutting this guy when it seems to encourage him and it gets him more followers? I mean, there's no question but that the fact that the Fox News has drafted off of and secured audience because of the massive backlash from mainstream media. Again, I don't think that that should silence us. But it does give you, you know, it, it does make you somewhat dispirited and dejected, depressed, and uh, feel a, a feeling of some futility encountering this stuff because it it doesn't stop him. You know, he he has gotten more and more viewers once the backlash really, really kicked in against him, and he now is untouchable. I think, he, you know, you're right, uh, Michael, with that Cruz thing. I just think he's the king of the Republican Party, and and that everybody's going to have to come in and get his approval. It was really remarkable what happened there. And, yeah. you know, if Cruz had said this thing about the terrorism. A dozen um, times he had called times, the, January 6th, the terrorist and, attack. So and this then, was, as Ted Cruz goes, a deep political conviction for Ted Cruz. With anybody else, he could have destroyed them. In the argument, he could have destroyed Tucker Carlson in that argument. Now, one one other thing. I think that Tucker learned a big lesson in November, November of 2021, when he went on and blasted Sidney Powell and there was a big backlash. His viewers got really mad. If you looked at Twitter the next day, he was getting killed. And ever since then, he has been basically one track with Trump and with with is it is it is it Trump or is it that MAGA base that yeah, they're it, all it, terrified know, of? He I has. I think it's probably the latter. More he so. has dedicated himself to doing doing exactly what he did not do that night with Sidney Powell. That night with Sidney Powell, he was an independent thinker that was questioning the MAGA faithful. He has never done that again. I think he learned. What, what sort of consequences might be coming for his viewership that night? 
Very quickly, one last completely different subject we wanted to touch on with you. A journalist named uh, Ruth Schleet Barrett sued the Atlantic magazine this past week for defamation because they had retracted an article that she had written that the Atlantic found had multiple flaws. You've done a lot of reporting on this. It's a subject of deep interest to this podcast because Clydeman can explain <laughs> his own connection. I have a little history. Uh, with, I have a little with, history. Uh, Barrett that goes uh, back this, 25 um, years. Uh, did the Atlantic do the right thing? Does uh, Ruth Shalit Barrett have a case? Uh, are you going to go first, uh, Clydeman? Or uh... <laughs> well, I, I'll, I can just I can set it up a little bit. This is a uh, media controversy that literally has been with us for 25 years. I naively thought that it would uh, go away. I remember. Well, let me say what happened. Uh, sometime in the mid 90s, I think I don't remember the exact year. I had written a piece for Legal Times where I was working at the time. A piece, it was a profile of Ron Klain. Who's, who's very much still with us. Very much still uh, still with right. us. And um, I worked pretty hard on that piece. It was the first big claim profile. And a few weeks later, I guess, uh, there was a piece that appeared in the New Republic under the byline Ruth Shalit, a byline that I was not familiar with. It was called the Stephanopolites. And it was about three young, up-and-coming Clinton political advisors Stephanopoulos was one of them. Ron Klain, I don't remember who the third one was. In any event, she lifted a couple of paragraphs pretty much wholesale from my piece. And um, we very politely called her on it. And Andrew Sullivan, who was the editor at the time, did not accuse her of plagiarism, which it was, just asked for an editor's note that that would uh, lay out that she had relied on some of our reporting. <laughs> and uh, they didn't do anything about it. And then there were several more incidents, and then a, a, a story about the Washington Post that was full of, of errors, and, and uh, it just went on from there. And she was essentially left the business and became a, a copywriter on Madison Avenue, which seemed kind of appropriate, and left journalism. And I remember there was a profile of her in City Paper or somewhere, and uh, the reporter had come to me for a quote, I think, expecting me to bash her. I said, you know, I hope Ruth learns her lessons from this. She's very talented. I wish her the best. And then uh, you can bring us uh, forward to uh, this moment and tell us what happened. Right. So she left for New York, worked in the advertising business. She did some sort of feature uh, profiles and uh, artsy profiles for New York and Elle magazine, but didn't really write that much over the sort of intervening 20 years. And then she she appeared in the Atlantic in October 2020 under the byline of Ruth S. Barrett with a story called The Mad, Mad World of Niche Athletics or Niche Sports. And, and I saw the story and I remember having sort of like been somewhat aware that Ruth S. Barrett was actually Ruth Shalit Barrett. I didn't think a lot of other people knew that. Uh, so I asked the Atlantic about that, and then I started digging in on the story because a couple things looked a little fishy to me. One of the things that looked fishy to me is she said there was a massacre at a fencing tournament that one of the uh, one of the kids, daughter of uh, the mom, who's sort of like the narrative thread for the story, had these massive gashes and you know fencing injuries. Now I'm not a fencer, but I know enough about fencing that it's pretty safe. Right. Like, you know, people don't commonly emerge from fencing matches being bloody. Otherwise, it really probably wouldn't exist. So so I just went from there and kept examining the story and examining it further and found some errors and found that, well, that woman who was said to have three daughters and a son didn't have a son. And then I asked the Atlantic and it went from on from there. And it turned out that there was this entire hullabaloo institutionally, organizationally about the Sun and that the Atlantic was unaware that they had published a falsehood, uh, that, they, that this woman had a son. And so that they lost faith in Ruth because Ruth did not tell them she participated in that falsehood either. Now and she claims it was to protect the, the woman's identity. Right. She has sued the Atlantic now over this whole matter based on the editor's note that they used to retract the story. 
that editor's note said basically that the Atlantic didn't know this and that Barrett had conspired in some way with her source to deceive the Atlantic's fact checkers and editors on this matter in order to preserve, um, to safeguard the identity of this person. And so, so the suit says it wasn't actually Ruth S. Barrett's idea, it was the source's idea, and she, exhausted at trying to safeguard this woman's identity, caved to the idea of putting the son in, but the, the editors didn't know about it, and so on and so forth. And Barrett, the other thing about this suit is that every misstep or error they claim is trivial. You know, all these things are trivial. Um, the sun is trivial, doesn't matter to the thrust of the piece, and so on and so forth. My argument is that it's all important because what that piece tried to do was to make this argument or make this sort of viral presentation that all these parents are crazy up there in Fairfield County. They're just insane. You know, it's the mad, mad world of niche sports and everything is out of control. And each one of these elements, I felt when I read the story, helped lead the reader to that conclusion. And so I feel that each one of these things really is material. That's my take on it. Well, I, I mean, I I, uh, uh, I don't know the details of the piece uh, in the way you do, but I would say that it's okay to take steps. In fact, it's sometimes necessary to take steps to protect the identity of somebody who uh, cannot be uh, publicly identified for a whole bunch of reasons. But it's not okay to invent details that are not true. We can say we're going to call Mustafa Mohammed for the purpose of this article, but we tell the reader that, not his real name, right? In this case, she inserted details that were simply not true, and that's crossing a line. Well, the other thing is, and I know that you guys will appreciate this, there are some sources that you try to make accommodations for. Not factual accommodations, but, you know, what not to say and what to say. Right. Those, those peop people generally have, are like whistleblowers with national security secrets, <laughs> stuff that, <laughs> yeah. that if, if the person's identity is revealed, they'll be killed, right, like tomorrow yeah. or tonight. <laughs> this person was a mother of three in Fairfield County who just had some opinions about college admissions. If, if it was so important to the story to have someone like that. Surely there was another woman around the corner or another dad around the corner or someone else who could have been inserted into the story on the record to make the point. Okay. That's my point. My bigger point is they wanted so badly to keep this woman in the story that it, it, it suggests to me that they didn't have anybody else who would quite give it that frisson, you know, give it that extra squeeze. And that, to me, is telling. I think the bigger point uh, to our uh, fellow journalist listeners is uh, they don't want to do anything that's going to get their articles fly-specked by the likes of you. Uh, and, <laughs> and by the way, but, she does come. She does. She doesn't name you in the lawsuit, but she does come after you in, oh, the, in, in over the and over again. Yeah. <laughs> well, you she can defend me. defend yourself. Yeah. All right, Eric Wemple, thanks again Thank for joining guys. us. I really appreciate you inviting me. It's very nice. Sure enough, anytime. Thank you.